Stellar job. Stellar job. Good morning. You guys doing okay? I did something for the first time in 13 years that I haven't done uh, since we planted the church. I normally do not do anything on Saturday nights, but last night I went to the Apple Cup, and I got home at 1.30 in the morning, and I've been drinking coffee since 11 o'clock last night to stay awake for you this morning. Um, any Cougars fans in the house? I'm really sorry. Any Huskies fans in the house? Man, what a game. All right. Uh, a few months ago, a couple months ago, we had spent some time working through spiritual gifts and talking about um, just how God has wired us, how he's gifted his church in so many like diverse ways. And one of the things we had been praying through, even in going through that series, was wanting to tell more stories of how God is actually moving through people's lives, how he's using the gifts that he's given people, how uh, people are the recipients of the gifts of God through other people. And a few weeks ago, uh, a man in our church came up to me and he told me a story about something that God did just in the middle of that series through him, through the gifts of somebody else. And so I said, oh man, do you want to get up and talk about that? Because I just really want you guys to just have real life examples of how God is moving in people's lives. And so I'm going to ask David Erickson to come up here. Meet David, everybody. Yeah. All right. Um, so David's going to kind of share a story with us, and then I'm going to ask him a couple questions. But I wanted you guys just to kind of hear, again, firsthand this really cool way that God spoke to David and kind of shifted some things in his life as of late. So, Thanks, Chris. Morning, everybody. So uh, my wife and I, we moved up here um, about two years ago uh, this month. And one of the things that allowed us to move up here was my job. I was able to work remotely, which was uh, godsend. It helped us to get out of a place that we wanted to get out of. And from that time, in the back of my mind, I knew I wanted to transition out of that job. Um, it was in mortgage lending, and if any of you have followed the news uh, for about the past year, it hasn't been so good, you know? So uh, it's still been a great job, and uh, I had been pursuing two opportunities, um, but they were long distance. One was in Seattle, one was in downtown LA. So one thing led to another, still pursuing these things for about a year, and in August, uh, there was a big meeting that I had that week, and it was Sunday, and I was sitting back there with my wife, and uh, after, after uh, the service, you know, it was like a time of worship, just standing there, and somebody tapped me on the shoulder, and I look over, and this gentleman, he said, hey, do you mind if I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. And um, so during, during the worship, uh, this gentleman proceeded to tell me, he said, three times now during the service, I felt the Holy Spirit uh, speak to me about you. I said, okay. Um, and, you know, in the back of my mind, um, I would consider myself a realist, sometimes skeptical, but uh, I grew up in the church, so I've seen both good and bad ways that people have thought they had a prophetic word, that sort of thing. But I was open-minded. I was curious as to what he would say, and sure enough, he said, you know, I, the Lord's telling me you're in the midst of a job change, and you're waiting for this opportunity to present itself. And in my head, I said, my goodness, yes. <laughs> and he said, the Lord wants you to know 
that what you're pursuing, there's going to be another opportunity that is better than what you could imagine, and it all depends on how you respond to him at this time. And so I'm trying to figure out, okay, is it downtown LA? Is it Seattle? How does it fit? And sure enough, the meeting in Seattle went very well, but nothing came to fruition, more delays. And that's what my wife and I had been experiencing, just delays and delays and delays. So a month later after that, um, and I'll, I'll make it quick, a friend of mine uh, from back home, I was just catching him, up, catching him up with everything, saying I'm waiting for these opportunities, you know, we'll see what the Lord has in store. And he said, you know what, while you're waiting, there's a very successful man. He moved up to Coeur d'Alene about a year before you did. Um, why don't I introduce you and you can just uh, go to coffee with him, godly Christian man. Um, and I thought, you know, why not? I can get some insight into the markets, see what he's thinking. One opportunity might be better than the other. So we go to coffee, and I thought it was going to be about 20 minutes, and it was an hour and a half into this meeting that he basically offered me a job with him. And it came out of left field, and what I didn't realize is he was interviewing me, asking me all these questions, and it was a job interview in his mind. So that happened in September, and then, I don't know if you guys remember, about a month ago, um, we were talking, telling all these stories about all these, all these things that had happened, ways that God had used gifts, and I really wanted to raise my hand and say something then, but the job wasn't solidified yet, so I didn't want to jump the gun. Um, and so sure enough, uh, at the beginning of this month, it was finalized, started this new role, I don't have to commute, I don't have to leave North Idaho. <laughs> so it's been, it's been a very long uh, road, and it wasn't easy, and at that time, when that man spoke to me, the Lord was giving me and my family um, peace in the midst of a storm, and it was, it was what I needed at that time, and so I just wanted to share the story just to encourage everyone that, you know, everything we're going through, it's just, it's very difficult at times, but, you know, like that song that was being sung, um, he's the rock on which we stand, and um, just seeing his faithfulness in my life was amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really neat for us to see, like, two sides to this. One is the obedience of the guy who put himself out there to say, hey, the Holy Spirit keeps identifying you and, and actually shared that with you. Yeah. Um, but then the other side of that is being on the recipient end of things, and just the encouragement that that is to know that the Lord's with you and that he carried you through it. And I just want to encourage us as a church, like I hope we can continue to share more stories like this because um, it really, church can often be very one-sided where you can see you know, somebody on a stage preaching to you on a Sunday and think, well, I don't have that gift and so I'm just called to kind of sit in the chair and listen on a Sunday. And the reality is like, the Lord has gifted us all in so many different ways, and in order for the body of Christ to be as the Lord saw it to be, we all need to be functioning in the gifts that he's given us and be working together with one another. And so anyway, I was super encouraged. Can I share one more thing? Yeah? Yeah, so one more thing. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that when I look back now, there's, there's no other explanation. There's no random chance for the way that God's written our stories for my family to be up here in North Idaho, for my friend to introduce me to this, this random man. Um, 
the way that that man happened to be sitting a couple rows back and the Lord was, was speaking through him. So one part I left out is at the end of this meeting where he basically offered me this position, we were just talking about different people that we know up here. And one thing led to another and he said, oh, well, you, you might know my daughter so-and-so. And I said, you're, you're, that's your daughter? Well, his daughter happens to be one of the first people my, my wife met when we first moved up here through this like freedom, creep, freedom keepers group through like a Facebook channel where we were trying to meet like-minded families and they live around the corner from us and they're actually good friends with us. So I didn't even know I was meeting with her dad. And, and he on his own accord and through a totally different route, we were able to get introduced and um, I mean, it's just wild the way that it worked. Um, so, I mean, it's just, there's no other way than seeing, like, God's hand on the whole story, so. Let me, let me pray for us. Thank God for this story. Absolutely. Yeah. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the way that you've just innately wired each one of us, Lord. I pray that stories like this would sort of fan the flame in your church, Jesus, that as your church stands up to testify in the goodness, the faithfulness of God, and continues to walk in obedience, Lord, that you would use that to just fuel the church, Lord, that we would be stronger, we would be more unified, that we would be more assured of our faith and the God that we serve, and that, Jesus, you would continue to work in miraculous ways in and through your people. I thank you for this morning, God. I thank you even for the study we get to get into this morning. I pray your hand be upon this service this morning, Lord, that you would anoint it, that we would use it to speak to our hearts, as I know there's some in this room, specifically as I've been just praying over this passage. There's some that need to hear this this morning, and so I pray, Jesus, in your name, that you'd bless this time. We thank you for David and for Jessica and the work that you're doing in their life, and I pray, Jesus, you continue to um, not only speak to them, but use them to even speak to others. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing. <laughs> All right, Nehemiah chapter 4, if you guys want to turn there, we're going to cover the whole chapter um, 4 of Nehemiah this morning. You guys good? All right, you seem a little dead this morning, you know? Nehemiah chapter 4. So we, we find ourselves at this place in the book of Nehemiah. We've been studying Nehemiah for the last few weeks. We find ourselves at this place where the wall's beginning to be built back up. Uh, if you're new with us and you haven't been here the last few weeks, the, the people of God have been in exile for over 100 years. This guy, Nehemiah, is serving as this cupbearer to this king of Persia, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And Nehemiah hears this news that the city of Jerusalem, his people, like God's city, the city where God's presence was to be declared from, the, the, God's city, where God's people would come from all over to worship God in, the city itself was in ruin. <clears throat> the temple um, had been rebuilt, but the wall around the city was in shambles. It was torn down. There's zero security. They're just open, up, open to the onslaught from the opposition, from the enemies that are around. And it was a city, again, without a wall. And so the people find themselves at this place where they're just discouraged. They're scattered. They're unfaithful. He, he's burdened. Um, to the heart for God's people, like Nehemiah just can't reconcile what it is that's taking place in the city that he would call home of his people. 
um, when he hears about the fact that it's in shambles. And so Nehemiah, with this king's permission, the king of Persia, he goes back down to Jerusalem and he begins this process of rebuilding the wall. Last week in chapter 3, we saw that Nehemiah organizes the people of God like in, order, in over like 40 different groups of people. He organizes them to work together to rebuild this wall all around the city of Jerusalem. And so when we pick up in chapter 4, we're in the middle of this wall being rebuilt. And just like it often goes in you and I's lives, when we see God begin to move in and around us, in our lives, around our lives, we immediately begin to see opposition to God's movement. I don't know how many of you can say an amen to that, but when you see God working in your life, the nearer you draw closer to the Lord, the more the opposition arises. And the reason that this opposition arises is because the enemy always works against the movement of God. That's his plan. And so we see in this passage today that the opposition picks up here in chapter 4 with some men by the name of Sambalat and Tobiah that we've talked about in the past. Uh, and so in chapter 4, it's this narrative basically about this, this opposition and, and, and this response to the opposition by God's people. And so I want to just walk through this text verse by verse. Nehemiah chapter 4, let's read 1 through 5. Now when Sambalat heard that they, were rebuilt, that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So in verse 1, we see this anger towards the Jews, right? This man, Sambalot, is angry that they're building the wall, and he decides to try to stop it. And the text says that he begins to jeer at them. He begins to jab at them. He begins to ridicule them. In verse 2, we see the way that he does this. He begins to sow these seeds of discord towards them. And in verse 2, he begins to rally other people to his side against the work of God. And those who are threatened and afraid and offended have this deep-rooted need to justify and to try to validate themselves. And they begin to try to convince others to join their side. This shouldn't surprise us, to be honest with you. Sambalat raises this army of people to his support. They, they come, they, they all begin to jeer at these uh, Jews that are working on this wall. And here's what they do. Like, here's his tactic. In verse 2. He refers to them as feeble Jews, right? So he, he seeks to just sort of, sort of discredit their ability. And, and he does this, um, he does this also with the church today. Like he, he, he does so with the truth, actually, is the way he discredits them is with the truth. And the truth is that they actually are feeble, that these people are actually sort of in shambles, right? He's not lying about that. He doesn't 
come at, come at them with lies first, but he actually comes at them with the truth about who they are, that they're feeble, that they're broken, that they're a weak people, that they have been since the day that God calls them. Like he's telling them this. They have no strength in and of themselves. They don't have it. And he takes this truth about them and he throws it right back in their faith, face. And he doesn't just use this truth, but next he, he begins to then instill these doubts about the wisdom of the endeavor that they're making to rebuild this wall. He says, will they restore it? Like, will you really be able to restore this wall? Like, are you sure that you should actually do this? Like, this is a massive task. You really think that you should take this on. And then he challenges their faith, the challenges their faith and their motivation. And he says, will they sacrifice? Like, or, or do you really think that you're doing this for the Lord? Like, is this really for his glory? Is this really for God's fame? Are you sure this isn't about you? And he says, this job is too big for you. And so he sows these seeds of hopelessness in these people. Will they really finish this in a day? This is gonna take way too long. Like, you'll never get to the end. You might as well just give up now, quit. Like, why work so long only to never make it to the finish line. You guys might as well throw in the towel right now. Just quit. You can't build this back in a day. And he uses these lies. Like, will you bring back, will you bring stones back to life, is what he says. And he begins to discuss these stones that have been burned and crumbled and these stones that are useless now. And, 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 and these are the stones that they're going to begin to rebuild this wall with. But we actually see, like, historically speaking, that these stones were not useless, that they were actually usable. Like, perhaps some of them were, were kind of worthless, but they were able to take these stones that they were deemed as worthless and begin to use those to rebuild the wall. Most of them were used to rebuild this wall. And he takes these falsehoods and these partial truths and he begins to turn them around on them and to use them to discourage these people. And this is his attack, like to tell the truth but to discourage them, to cause their, their, their doubt and, and, their, and cause them to have fear and to use these lies and, and to attack them and to distract them from what it was that God wanted to do. And then in verse three, this guy Tobiah joins in. And it says that Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they're building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Now, maybe trash talking was a little bit different in their day, right? <laughs> But when you hear this, it actually seems like such a stupid attack. Tobias seems to sort of sarcastically be saying, yeah, if a fox jumps on your wall, wouldn't it knock down the whole thing? Like, your, your wall can't even handle a fox, so take that. Like, what are you guys going to do now? And I sort of picture Sambalot being like, geez, Tobias, dude, you're discrediting this whole operation like you're making us look like a total joke and that's kind of how I picture it but I think that there's so much value to what he said there, there's actually weightiness to what he says here because what Tobias really um, what, what Tobias really terrible expression in our translation today is is this no matter what you do it's not going to last 
No matter how hard you try, no matter how much work you put in, no matter how long you do this, no matter how well you do it, what you build is just way too feeble. It's just going to break. It won't last, so why even try? Why even give it a shot? Like, any parents in this room ever felt that way before with your kids? Like, why even try? We try to discipline our kids. We try to teach them well. We've tried all these things, and nothing seems to work. Why even try anymore? It's not going to last. We, we might as well just give up today, right? That's the discouragement that they bring upon the Jews. Verse 4, we get their response. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So Nehemiah has a response in verse 4, and his response is this. Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah's first response in all these situations leading up to this point was first to pray. When he received the bad news about the, the land of Jerusalem, he prays. When he's confronted with this really important decision, this discussion to have with the king of Persia, he prays. When, when he's faced with the challenge of planning out this whole thing with rebuilding the wall, he prays. When he's attacked by opposition, he prays. Like this seems to be Nehemiah's first response in each situation. He continues to bring it back to prayer. And I've heard so many of you, even in the last few weeks since we started the study through the book of Nehemiah, that have said you felt challenged in the area of prayer in your own lives. What an amazing thing. To actually make prayer a normal part of our lives, to engage in prayer in new ways. You know, one of the things that was kind of even birthed out of this was this 6 a.m. prayer gathering that we've been doing on Wednesday mornings, which like the first week there were six people, the second week there's 12 people. You know, it's like God is birthing a hunger in his people to pray first, to get up at 5.30 in the morning, to come pray from six to seven, like to hear the prayers of the people. Like there's something incredible when the church begins to take this seriously. Because oftentimes we've relegated our prayers to like our quick prayer before we eat our meal at the end of the day our quick prayer with our kids before they go to bed at night, which none of these are bad things. But the reality is some of you are going through things in your life right now that you cannot make sense at. The opposition is heavy, it's strong, it's coming at you in a real way. What's your first response? For Nehemiah, we see him go to prayer. And what's interesting with Nehemiah, when he engages in this prayer, his prayer is sort of interesting. Like, it's almost, it doesn't even seem like a prayer we should be praying, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't even see, it doesn't seem right. He doesn't pray for God's grace to be upon them. He doesn't pray for salvation to come upon them. He doesn't pray for God to have mercy on them because they're just plain idiots. He prays this invocative sort of prayer upon them. And look what he says, here, oh, our God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them to be plundered in a land where they're captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Like Nehemiah says, God, 
may what they desire to be done to us be done to them instead, is what Nehemiah says. May you not give them grace, but seek justice. Lead them away to captivity. May they even be plundered. Like he's praying this aggressive prayer, but he's not praying for it in his own defense is what's interesting. Notice this prayer is not a prayer like, God, would you give me the ability to plunder them? I cannot wait to ransack their lives. That's not his prayer. His prayer is not for his own ability to begin to seek revenge towards these people. His prayer is not even to his own defense, right? God, they've embarrassed me. God, they're making my job more difficult. The focus of Nehemiah's prayer and the reason he's able to pray like this and the reason it's good to do so is because he's praying for the glory of God to be protected. God, have your way. Fight for yourself, basically, in this. God, defend your own work. There's a well-known theologian that said this about this prayer. This prayer spoken not from a private spirit of revenge, but from a public spirit of the glory of God and his justice, and not as a mere imprecation, but as prophecy of what would be the case. For this, there was a good foundation since God had threatened the Moabites and the Ammonites with utter destruction. See, God's already threatened and warned these Moabites and the Ammonites, if you do this, you will be destroyed. He's already told them that. And Nehemiah is now turning to God's promises in these prayers. God, you've promised to defend us, and now I'm praying that you would actually do so. Would you defend us? God, would you defend your work? You've promised that your work will go forth. Make it go forth. Like his prayers are literally for the glory of God to be defended. And you see it in verse six. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so their response to this opposition that, that comes against them is to first pray. And then second, what's their response? Is to remain faithful to what God had asked them to do. And so they, they pray and they remain faithful to what God had called them to. And, and they get back to the work. They continue working until the wall is built to half of its height. And when they get to this point, this guy Sambalot doesn't respond well. But, but notice this, that their faithfulness to build a wall actually follows their prayer that God would be faithful to build the wall. So interesting. Like you can't separate the faithfulness of the people in verse 6 from the prayer in verses 4 and 5 that he prays. Nehemiah prays that God would be faithful and God gives the people faithfulness to what it is that God called them to do, Right? That the people's faithfulness is literally God's answer to Nehemiah's prayer. It strengthens them. It gives them faithfulness. In verse 7, the, the opposition comes again and it says, But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and we set a guard as a, as a protection against them day and night. So Sambalot thought that his ridicule and his jeering would literally just end the work, that they'd just stop halfway through, right? He, he literally thought that the people of God would give in to this simple form of discouragement that he begins to sow into these people. And in fact, like many of us do that. 
We give in so early. The wall's only half built and the discouragement comes and we're like, I'm done. Like, I can't take it. So many of us never need to see like any more tension be placed upon our lives or we don't want to feel persecution. We don't want to feel opposition because we simply give in to discouragement. And so the, the people here, they, they didn't. They didn't give in to the discouragement. So Sambalot, he's enraged and he's angered and he says, we've got to take this to the next level. Like, let's ramp up our game. And so he rallies the nations, like that, that, that literally, all the nations that literally surround Jerusalem on all sides, he rallies them. They come together against Jerusalem. They threaten war, like they even plan this attack against Jerusalem. Why are they so stinking upset about this is the question we have to ask. Why are they so frustrated? Because when the people of God labor in unity for the glory of God, all the world cherishes is threatened. Everything that the world wants becomes threatened when the people of God come together. When we have a mind to work and we set our minds to something together in the power of the Spirit, there is opposition that will come. And their power is threatened in this moment. Their position is threatened, right? Their values are threatened. Their idols are being threatened. Their glory is being threatened. And so they rally to fight against this threat. And their main threat is the glory of God. They want to uphold God and his glory, give him glory. And that's a threat to anybody else that has power. So the response of the people in verse 9, it says, And we prayed to our God, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Again, they pray. The, the first response every time, like they pray. They set a guard day and night. They pray. They protect. Verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Like praise the Lord for verses 10 through 12. Because discouragement hits like a ton of bricks. And in some ways, these are the most encouraging verses to me in this whole passage. Because they're verses that without them, I have no idea how in the world I would relate to this text. Like, I find myself relating to it when I see this. When the attacks are coming... When, when the discouragement is coming, when the jeering's coming, when the ridicule's coming, when there's a threat of war coming and the threats against your physical safety are coming in your family, threats against your children, and all of these aspects of your life are just taxed and you're feeling the pressure. Listen, if the people of God had no discouragement at all in this moment, I'd be like, nope, I can't relate to that. Like half the time I stand up here even to preach on a Sunday and I get self-conscious about the way that people look at me, right? Let alone the physical attacks coming against God's people. 
The people are discouraged. They say their strength is literally failing. That the task was just way too big. There there weren't enough people to complete it. They can't do this on their own. And the enemy is even claiming that they're going to sneak in. They're going to kill them before they even realize what's happening. They, They say they're afraid. Those who are outside the camp, who were outside the walls, who were living in the surrounding areas, they were saying, you've got to come get us. We're in danger. We're afraid. Come get us. Like, come escort us in. And there's fear and there's discouragement and there's this reality that this is too big of a task for them, for us, for me. But Nehemiah strengthens their faith. In verses 13 through 23, he goes on to say, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Listen to this. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And he begins to put this protection in place in verse 13, right? He puts up guards with swords and spears and bows. He actually prepares them and and he arms his people for battle. And he organizes them by clans, right? Which is basically this historical form of military warfare by Israel. That that they would fight in clans. Like Nehemiah has done his research. He's studied. He knew how the people were to fight. He wasn't just out there blindly going, hey, everyone, grab a stick and just go defend yourself. Let's just make this happen. Just go find something you can fight with and let's just make this happen. So here's the strategy. Listen to this. Here's how he focuses in. Here's what we need to do to protect ourselves. And he organizes them to do this. In verse 14, we saw that he exhorted their hearts. Like he exhorts the hearts of the people and he says, remember who? Who does he tell them to remember? God, who is what? Great and awesome. He doesn't remind them or or encourage them that they are great, that you are awesome, you can do this. Like you guys are just so amazing. But he reminds them that God is great and awesome. Nehemiah doesn't go, listen guys, you're enough. Like you can do this yourself. You're strong enough. Like don't be afraid, you guys. Look how powerful we are as a people. Don't be afraid. Look at the weapons that you have in your hands. He doesn't give any attention to what they are doing for this exhortation to stay faithful. He says, your God is great and awesome. He's awesome. You're awesome because he's awesome. And the truth of the matter is for you and I, we are feeble. They were feeble people. They're weak. The the opposition always outnumbers us, right? You're surrounded. You have no military experience because you've been in exile your whole entire life and you don't have an army. Like, we're hopeless. But God is great and awesome and his encouragement to them is to remain faithful. And then he puts them within their families and he says, fight for each other. He puts them in their clans, in their families. He says, go fight for one another. Because he knows how people work, right? He knows that I'm going to defend my son and my family with way more rigor than I'm going to defend yours. And so I'm going to put them in their families, in their clans, and they are going to fight for one another because they're going to protect their own blood. And he begins to break them up. 
Because people love and cherish and fight for their families. That's what they do. So he puts them in these clans, he puts them in these families to fight, he uses that and he says, now fight for your brothers and your sisters and your families. And then he goes into verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and coats of mail, coats of armor. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other, like such an amazing picture. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we're separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet. What do you do? Rally to us there because our God will fight for us. Where you hear the trumpet, get there, and it's on. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this together. In verse 16, it says that half the people worked on the wall, half stood with their weapons to protect them. And it's debated whether he means like half of all the people or whether he means half of his guard. But he had some people working on the wall. He had some people on guard 24-7. This is a major task. Verse 17 Those who were carrying supplies carried supplies in one hand and a weapon in the other hand. And then verse 18, every builder had a sword strapped to his side. Like they didn't just hold it in their hand, right? They needed both hands to be able to work. But the sword is strapped to their side so that they knew like in a moment's notice they could pull the sword out and they could fight. And so he develops this emergency sort of SOS plan, right? He says, this work is widely spread out all over the city from one corner of the city to the next. We won't know if something's happening on one side or the other, so I've got this trumpeter with me, and when I hear that the, work, when I hear that the work's going on, which means that he, he's also constantly aware of what's happening all around this wall, he goes, if I hear about an attack, rally to where the trumpet's blown, and there we're gonna fight. And then he says, the Lord will fight for us. Like, even though we probably should not win. The Lord will fight for us. And he says, listen, there might be a moment of of attack, and if so, like we'll sound the trumpet, we'll rally, that's like our emergency response plan, meet me at the trumpet. Verse 21, so we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. He goes, listen, all those who are outside the protection of the walls, go get them. Like they're staying in the protection of the walls. Don't let them stay out there. It's vulnerable. They're vulnerable. Like, bring them in and let's care for them in here. Let's protect them within here. They'll work during the day. They'll protect us at night. Like, bring everyone within the walls of protection. And so my question is, that's a ton to get through, but what do we do with this for us today? What we're not going to do is go build a walled compound 
and all of us move within it, and we start to give you all weapons, and you post up 24-7, and we defend our compound. If I ever start to talk like that, you have the freedom to go find another church. That's called a cult, right? Um, so that's not the like, logical application from this text for us today. But we have to remember where they were and where we are in this whole redemptive history, in this whole story. Where they are at in, in redemptive history is that God's plan of salvation for the world at that time for these people was through a city-state, like with this capital city and walls where the people were protected within these walls. They worshiped God through sacrifices in the temple that existed within these walls, like within the security of those walls. Worship of God was being protected in the city, within those walls. And God is defending his glory and his worship by building these walls through his people around the city. But that's not where we find ourselves today as the church. That's not where we find ourselves on this redemptive timeline. God's plan of salvation comes through the preaching of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, amen? And it actually comes through the preaching of that through his church, through people like you and I, who wave the banner of Jesus and go share with others what it is that Jesus has done in our life through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we don't enter into God's presence through bronze gates, right? We enter into God's presence through this invitation by God the Father to enter in through the gates of grace. That's the whole point of Christ. We don't gain salvation through sacrifices made in a temple, but we gain salvation through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on his cross. We aren't secure because of walls and because of armies. We're secure because of the seal of the Holy Spirit upon us. And this is where we sit in the whole timeline, right? God's plan of salvation for the world at that time was through this city-state, through Jerusalem. But at this time, it's through his church, like through his people who are saved, like by God's invitation to them, who are bought by Christ's blood and who are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so what does it mean then to be built up, to build up and to protect ourselves against opposition today? And here's just some, pra some practical points that I kind of want to end with this morning. Three things. One, to those of you in this room that are unbelievers, you do not know Jesus. You've never engaged in a relationship with Christ. You've never taken that step of faith. Man, I plead with you this morning to literally hear God the Father's invitation to enter the gates of grace. To come. To hear God's invitation to enter the gates of grace, to receive salvation this morning, which is purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. To come and experience like his peace and his joy that comes from the presence of his Holy Spirit upon our lives. I invite you this morning to come take part in Jesus. If you've never recognized your sin and your own rebellion towards God and realized that that existed, if you've not admitted that you have no ability to justify yourself before God this morning, if you've not placed your faith in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then my challenge to you this morning is that you do that today, that you receive the new life that Jesus is offering you. And until you do this, the harsh reality is that you are not okay. You're not secure. 
You have no protection against the attacks of the enemy. None. Because we're protected by the blood of Christ. And the, 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 the lack of protection and, and the ability the enemy has is so vicious and, and it's so evil and so destructive, like more so than you could ever imagine. Like the enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and he will do it. And my encouragement to you this morning is to come to Jesus, to find faith in him. Come into the city of salvation through Christ this morning. Second, to the believers in this room, opposition will come. <laughs> like, it will come. And there's many that will be like, then why would I turn my life to Jesus if you promised me that I will face opposition? And I will tell you this morning, facing opposition should be even more assurance for you that Jesus is real. <laughs> because there's a battle that's been waged over your souls. This opposition, it'll come in verbal attacks. People will ridicule you in this world that we live in. It'll come through fear and discouragement. It'll come through disunity within the body of Christ. We'll actually see some of this even next week in the text as we, as we work through into chapter five. But it'll come through sin and shame and doubt within your hearts. Some of you today are facing opposition at work. You're facing opposition with family members because you believe that Jesus was God and that he died for you. You put all your faith in a man who claimed to be God and died and rose again and you get ridiculed and you face opposition from people because of this. But second, some of you today are facing opposition because of your own sin. You've literally opened the doors. The, the opposition hitting you today is temptation. Like, it, it's sin. One temptation after another. One sin after another. One shame after another. Because of open doors that you've cracked and you've allowed open and you've given the enemy access. Like, you're literally allowing the opposition in. Lust is like plundering your joy in your life. Pride has this death grip around your neck. Bitterness is literally taking your breath away. Fear is destroying your mind. Doubt is just clogging your hearts. And the lack of faith flowing through your veins is literally shutting down all hope that you have in Christ. Like you're facing the onslaught of the enemy's attacks, his opposition, again, through your sins. So what do we do with that? How do we respond to this? And we follow, if we follow Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's example, well, first we pray, right? We talked about that. We, we pray this prayer of death for the opposition to God's work in and through you. And we can't be tame in our prayers. I want to encourage you guys in this this morning, right? We don't have to be polite in our prayers. Like, oh, please, Jesus, you know, like, please don't let the opposition attack me. Like, go at it. The reality is a war has been waged over your heart and your soul. So deal with it like a battle that you're facing. Pray that your sin would literally be ripped into pieces and scattered across the seas, like never to be seen again as far as the east is from the west. Like don't go easy on your sin and your prayers. Be raw with your sin and your prayers with the Lord. Like, Lord, rip this thing out of my life and replace it with the hope and the joy and the peace that can only come through Jesus. And whatever it takes, that, that your heart would be freed from the opposition. Like, 
is it that serious to you? That's my question. Or are we playing a game? Are we playing a game? Is this all just kind of this massive chess game and we're just kind of a pawn on the board and we kind of got to do the right things and make the right moves? Or do we believe we're engaged in a battle and that a war has been waged? Do we believe that? And if so, let's actually engage this war that we're in. What's interesting with the story to me, there's this reminder in this passage that's so good, is that they start to get the wall built and they get halfway, right? And um, they, they get the wall halfway built and the, op- the opposition up till halfway was actually bearable. They were able to keep building. Like at this point, there's discouragement, there's some like jeering here and there, but it hasn't really ramped up. When does the opposition ramp up in the story? They get halfway done and what begins to happen? The breaches are being closed. The gaps are closing in. There's no way for the opposition to find a way in anymore. And I think there's something so significant with that in our own lives and our own hearts. You wanna face opposition? Begin to close the gaps. Close the breaches in your life. Shut the doors. Don't let it in. Not even a little bit of it. Don't let it in. Because you can build the wall halfway, and most of us have done that. We started our relationship with Jesus. We're like, this is so good. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What an easy thing. I rose my hand. I believe in him. I get saved. Like, that's all fine and dandy. But then the rubber meets the road one year, two years, five years, ten years down the road when you hit a really significant opposition in your life, and you're faced with the dilemma of do I give in or do I continue to press on? Do I believe that God is as big as I knew he was the day I gave my life to him? And if so, I continue to press on and I allow the breaches to be closed. Do you want to see the enemy squirm? Close the breaches. Get rid of the gaps, the cracks, the ways that he has access for you believers in this room. What a cool opportunity we have to tune our hearts, our ears to Jesus, to be led by him and as he leads us to literally make moves, walk in obedience, let the gaps be closed so that there's no cracks. I pray that those who are opposing you guys from the outside those who are literally opposing God's work in you and through you, those who are opposing God's glory would literally be silenced in Jesus' name. Like they have no authority. And not for your glory and not for our vengeance towards somebody, but actually for God's fame and for God's glory, amen? We want him to be exalted. Like he, we want his fame and his glory to be made known throughout the world. Like we pray for faith. We, we pray for faithfulness. We pray for courage. We pray for God's glory. We pray for like these passionate prayers for freedom and for protection. And then church, we protect ourselves. We pray and we protect. It's not just pray. We also protect. We stand on guard. You protect yourself by reminding yourself and others to put your faith in God's strength and not your own strength, right? Because we are feeble. You don't protect yourself by reminding yourself of how great you are and how strong you are. Self-help strategies don't work in the kingdom of God. We remind ourselves of how great he is 
his promises, the certainty we have in him, the assurance we have in Christ. And we, we know the words that so, you, so that we know God's promises and we can pray God's promises. Like we know the words so that we can discern truth from lies. Like we dig into his word. We know the word of God so that you know what holiness is and what sin is. And that it's real. We know the word of God so that you know God's promises to fight for temptation, against temptation in your life. To know ourselves well enough to know that we're tempted, that we're weak, that we're affected. But to also know the weapons that he's been given us to fight the war and the battle that we've been engaged in. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I have no idea what those tools are. Like, what are these weapons you speak of? Prayer, God's word, fasting, his church, family. Like, these are the tools God has given us to fight this battle. And if you're struggling to figure out where those are and how to use them, there are people in this room that want to walk with you and be a part of that. There's plenty of people here who would love to resource you and help you in that process. But you don't just fight to protect yourself. We actually fight to protect one another as well, right? You're a family. Like we're literally covenanted with one another as the family of God. So we make it our responsibility to protect our brothers and our sisters from the onslaught of attacks. Like we step into things, heavy situations with people because we know there are times when we need to hold their hands up because they're weak. And they need help and they need strength and they need prayer and they need people to come around them. And this is something that all of us, I think, need to actually grow in. Third thing. Actually, before that, I also want to remind us that some of us just need to blow the trumpet, right? (laughs) Like sometimes you blow the trumpet, you're like, like stuff's off, I'm struggling, like I need help. And what does the church do in that moment? There's the SOS cry, who's there? I can't tell you how many times I've had that trumpet blow in the last four weeks of my life. The trumpet blows and I watch this church just rally around people who desperately need the strength of God that comes through his people. Lastly is this, and I'll invite the worship team to come up. The third challenge for believers, and it sounds simple, but I want us to go away on this this morning, is that we just give God the credit. You give God the credit. We, we read over it really quickly, but we didn't really land on it. But in verse 15, notice what happens. He says, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, what they do, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And in every chapter, Nehemiah has given credit to God for what has transpired. He's never taking credit for his own strategy. He's not taking credit for his own conversation with the king or credit for his own planning. He's not taking credit for his own leadership over the people to actually build the wall. He's not taking credit for his own like military tactics and how extraordinary he is like to, in helping them defend themselves. Like He doesn't say, hey, since I, since I gave you weapons and, and knew the warfare, they're discouraged and they're going to quit fighting us now. Like He doesn't say that. He says... God discouraged their plans. God did this. And church, we need to give God the credit for what he does to free us from the opposition and from sin. Don't for a moment take credit for your freedom. You did nothing to deserve it. Like that is God's grace. 
Don't for a moment take credit for your security. It's God's. Like God is great. God is faithful. We are weak and feeble and we need him. God invites us into salvation with him by Jesus. Like he buys our salvation. The spirit seals our salvation. You're protected and defended by and preserved by God alone, not by yourself. It's him who has preserved your life. And so if your salvation and your security with God and your right standing with God was left to yourself and left to our own strategies and our own abilities to defend and to protect and to hold on, it would have slipped through our fingers the moment that we received it. Because we're weak and we're feeble. We're unfaithful a lot, but God is not, right? So we give credit to him for our security and our salvation, what he's granted to us. We give credit to him for his faithfulness in the midst of opposition. We give God the credit. I want to pray for you because I know that there's some of you in this room this morning that are facing opposition in your lives. And the wall's halfway built. There's still cracks in the wall and the opposition feels heavy and all you wanna do is cut tail and run. And I wanna encourage you this morning, why don't you blow the trumpet and rally the church? (laughs) Like why don't we keep going? Let's put our hands to the work. Let's have a mind to work and continue to press in because I really do believe, and this is not just pastor's lingo, that God is up to something. Worldwide, God is up to something. There's so many good things happening worldwide right now. People coming to faith in Jesus, like the very farthest off of the far lost coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The church rising up and actually becoming the church that Jesus bled and died for, not people that want to play the game. And for some of us in this room, you're at that why in your life of just, am I going to press in and continue to move forward, or am I going to give in and cut tail and run? And I want to encourage you this morning to say the course. For some of you in this room, you've never put your faith in Jesus. Like, my prayer is that my words wouldn't do any convincing, but the Spirit of God that's work in this room this morning would be beating on your heart. And you'd know that you are loved that Jesus paid a price for your life to invite you into something that would grant you new life, that would grant you freedom, that would give you strength and grant you peace as you continue this journey on with him, that you don't have to do this alone, and that if your shame and your guilt and the sin and the junk in your life feels like it's burying you, then come to the cross of Jesus this morning to find yourself relieved by him. Let me pray for us. Would you stand? Jesus, I want to thank you for each person in this room. I want to thank you for the work that only you can do, God. I thank you. This morning, we do want to give you the glory. Even as we sing these songs, God, we give you the glory this morning. We want to uphold, lift up your name, God, not just within this building, but outside of these walls. May our lives just radiate and exude Jesus everywhere we go. May these songs be songs that we don't just sing within these four contained walls, but songs that we sing everywhere we go. Let our hearts cry out to you this morning, Jesus. Let our hearts sing of your glory and your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. Lord, that what the enemy meant to steal, kill, and destroy and to take us out, that you would use this morning to bring life and to bring life abundantly to us. Above and beyond, God, bring new life to your people. I pray as we engage in these worship songs this morning, God, that our hearts would be turned to you. 
that you'd be drawing us to yourself this morning, God, that the lost, those in this room who do not know you would be found as they turn their lives to you this morning. And the believers in this room would be reinvigorated in their hearts that the God that they first put their trust and their faith in is still at work today, has not left them nor forsaken them, and will continue this work on until eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.